I'm Dave Rubin, and joining me today is the host of the aptly titled Michael Knowles Show on the Daily Wire and the author of the brand new book, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds, Michael Knowles. Welcome back to the Rubin Report. Dave, thank you for having me. It's good to be with you. I felt my intro there was very professional broadcastery because you're a professional broadcaster and I felt mm-hmm. that you enunciate very well and you, with the posture and the whole thing. How'd I do there? I was very impressed. And look, the, bo- the whole book is about words, your diction, your articulation. Mm. Beautiful, <laughs> beautiful. Uh, All right, let's get the stuff we got to get out of the way right up top. Uh, You screwed me. Everybody knows you screwed me. It's been talked about many times. I'm brought on other shows. They ask me about it. Um, We were having drinks uh, last uh, spring. You were at my house with your lovely wife, and we were drinking whiskey and eating steak, and we decided in a drunken stupor that we were both going to stay and fight in Los Angeles and dethrone Gavin Newsom and keep Mm -hmm. the union together. And it yep. was very exciting. And then I the next wait. morning, it was announced that you were moving to Nashville. Well, yes, that uh, was, now in, in my defense, Dave, I was very excited. I was filled with pure vitriol against Gavin Mussolini. I We had imbibed quite a bit. We were in your beautiful home. Oh, we were ready to go. Then I walk in and you know what happens here at the Daily Wire? They, I walk into the room, you know what they, they say, jump. And you know what I say, Dave? How, how high. high. That's what I, how high. And it, I jumped so far that I'm in Tennessee. You are in Tennessee. I saw you. you, you're settling in. How's it going for the Daily Wire in Tennessee? Are you guys happier now that you've left Los Angeles, left me, left Dennis Prager, and the one other decent person in this craptastic <laughs> town? It's got, there's gotta be one. I'm sure there's at uh, least there's one. Some, well, uh, Gary Sinise. Gary, yes, Gary Sinise would be there. John Adam Boy, Carolla, Carolla, Boy, here. yeah, no. See, there are some, there are some people left, but it's true. A ton of people are fleeing, and they're fleeing to three places: Tennessee, Texas, and Florida. Florida now is like the, truly the last bastion. If it's just going to break off and float into the Atlantic Ocean, it's great. My little newborn son, who was he was born here, he's going to have a little Southern drawl, the first Knowles probably ever to have one. Uh, it's good. I, I have guns. I have money. I breathe the sweet air of freedom. People are nice and normal here. It's, it's, it turns out that the, that little part of America, the little part between New York and L.A., you know, you might have heard of it. <laughs> yes, it's actually yes. a pretty nice place. You mean we shouldn't just think of it as flyover country? There's actually some decent people there and, and decent you, customs and... No, you can land a plane, actually. It's not, you can actually land it here and there's like stuff to do and people and it's, and it's nice, yeah. Just absolutely incredible. Do you think, I mean, now that, you know, some time has gone by, almost a year actually since we had that conversation at my house, do you think I'm bananas? I mean, what do you think of the remaining people who are trying to keep, you know, these states not from going into complete progressive lunacy, although maybe it's done already, I don't know. I think you are bananas. I know the kind of the formal excuse for this sit down was that we were gonna talk about the book or whatever. This, Dave, this is an intervention. (laughs) Your friends love you very much. We want to see you happy. We don't wanna see you hurting yourself. And every minute that you stay in that hellscape uh, in California, that is, you're inflicting harm on yourself and on society. You got to get out. You got to come to the sweet land of freedom. Plus, you had fried bologna there, which was really something. 
<laughs> not just the, the air and the money and whatever else no. he said. It was also the fry building. All right, before we get to the book, let's just do a little recap of what's going on in the world because I haven't yeah. we haven't sat down together in a while. It's been well, I did your show when I was in Nashville a few weeks ago. We got we got drunk in the middle of the day. That was fun. Uh, but the last time we sat down was uh, when I came back on the grid and you you welcomed me back in yeah, September. Right. So a lot has happened. Obviously, the world is just completely bananas. What, what what's your grade? If you had to grade the state of the world right now, what are you feeling? Uh, well, I think it resists letters. I think if we if we're doing A through F, uh, we no no, no we, and we go down to Z, no. And you try the Greek alphabet; they're renaming all the COVID variants. It's no longer the Indian variant or whatever. That's politically incorrect. So right. now it's they're using Greek letters like omega and yeah. pi, and, and they're saying that's much simpler. It it even goes beyond the Greek uh, alphabet. What is happening right now is we're seeing an inversion of reality, right? We're seeing, we, we all kind of had a basic understanding of the world and we all, ba- you know, we squibbled over whatever, but we, that now has been completely turned up upside its head. And I, I think actually the, the great example of this is the, in, it's why everyone's talking about this gender issue. It is the insistence that we must go along with this ideology that says a man is a woman and a woman is a man. It's it's only one minor issue, but it's a symbol of the broader problem. I mean, we are told by the Dr. Fauci's of the world, these people who have no accountability to the people whatsoever, that if we question what they want us to do, that changes every single day in political calculations, that we are anti-science mm-hmm. and anti-democracy. They'll say, if we, the people, question what these totally unaccountable elites do in contravention of the laws that we are threatening our democracy. And I I often think of Angelo Cotevilla, who's the scholar at the Claremont Institute, who pointed out that whenever they refer to our democracy, what they really mean is their oligarchy. (laughs) It's totally, totally the opposite. So we are just in the upside down. Right. I know I can drop a Star Wars reference with you, but it was only a few weeks ago that Fauci said, if you're against him, you're against science, which is very Palpatine, I am the Senate. You know, it is. I always, I, I always assumed, science. I thought, I thought Palpatine would be like Joe Lieberman or something. You know, they kind of bear that <laughs> physical resemblance. No, it's, it's to, Tony Fauci. That's, uh, that's the man. The lockdowns, you, you were pretty much against all of it from the beginning, right? Like you were, I'll yeah. give credit, I'll give credit where it was due. You were pretty you. much against all of this from beat one. Was there, did you have a little window? What, what were you doing in that two week to flatten the curve thing? No, I, I had no window. I mean, I, I've been licking doorknobs since this virus was announced. Uh, I was willing to entertain the, the idea that the government has sort of emergency powers during a pandemic. So when they said two weeks to slow the spread, I, I said, this is a bad idea. I don't like it. I'm against the masks. I'm against all of it. But it is within our political tradition for certain governments and ideally more local governments to take these kinds of actions. But the problem with it and I knew it from the top, and I think you knew it, and a lot of us knew it, is it, it was never what they said it was. They said that it was about two weeks to flatten the curve. We knew the minute you give them this kind of power, it's not yeah. going to be two weeks. It's not, it's not going to be 15 days. It's not going to be 15 months. It's still going on right now. They said that the reason we need to wear the masks, well, sorry, after they told us not to wear the masks, when they told us we had to wear the masks, they told us the reason for that is it will help us get back to normal. But, but I knew, as I think anyone with common sense knew, the masks not only won't help us get back to normal, it, it will, they will ensure that we never get back to normal because when you see someone wearing a mask, 
that symbol does not tell you, oh good, everything's normal again. That, that thing, we've never been in a culture where everyone is covering their face and muzzling themselves. That tells us we are living in extraordinary and extraordinarily dangerous times and ev- all the normal rules of engagement have to be suspended. And that has continued. There are still people wearing those muzzles today. Isn't it interesting how they at first were saying, oh, we'll get back to normal, meaning two weeks to flatten the curve, then we'll get back to normal. But then it did shift a, a certain amount of months yeah. in. It shifted to no, there's a new normal. Those are very, very different things. They, they told us there's a new normal. And I asked scientists, even scientists who are broadly more conservative, you know, who are, who are more in the center. And I said, so what's up with these masks? Is this, is this ever going away? And I kid you not, some of them told me, well, Michael, look, yes, it'll go away as a permanent measure, but, you know, maybe every flu season, the masks come back. I mean, Michael, it's, it's really crazy before. Before, we were so crazy, we shook hands with people. Oh, that's, we can't return to that. We didn't wear masks on airplane. I mean, you know, so some of that is just, that's the way we're going to live now. And I thought, you, you people have lost your minds. Have we watched just a complete collapse of, well, I think all of our institutional elite and all that, I think you're, you're in agreement with me on that and our educational elite and blah, blah, but just sort of like the average guy that used to be somewhat sensible, like where is everybody? That's what I, every day I'm like, just where is everybody? I guess they're just locked up at home. They're locked up at home and they're, they're quite afraid. And th- this is what was so brilliant about the political strategy of, of the masks and the lockdowns. And d- don't forget, we talk about how it was a scientific strategy. Public health officials are part scientist and part politi- politician. The health part is the science and the public part is the politics. Mm-hmm. Public and politics are s- synonyms. And a- as a political strategy, it's very difficult for, for people to organize and oppose the ruling power if they're not even allowed to gather, right? I mean, you, you were not permitted to see anyone outside of your home, so they isolated everybody. Then when you could go in public, you had to wear this sort of secular kefia, you know, this, this kind of a modernist burqa where you're covering your face. Yeah, and, just wait until they get rid of the secular part. That's coming next. But I don't want to freak <laughs> that's, everybody that's, out. That's, yeah, on, that's yeah. on the heels. Yeah. But, but then even you say, okay, well, I'm, I'm not allowed to gather physically. I'm not allowed to see my friends. Well, at least we can, we can correspond online, right? No, you can't. In, in the heat of the 2020 election, which is what all of this was about, let's, let's not kid ourselves. In the heat of the 2020 election, if you found an article on the New York Post that had very pertinent information about the election, you couldn't message your friends. Mm-hmm. The function to direct message someone, to send a message on Facebook, that was shut down. That was disabled. If you said something that the regime did not approve of, namely, if you pointed out that Hunter Biden had all of this evidence of illicit activities that also may, may or may not have implicated his father. So they alienate us physically. They alienate us digitally. Is it any wonder that the, the conservatives are having a hard time coming back to common sense? And is it any wonder, watch this segue, that we've all become speechless. You see wow. what I did there? Professional. Yeah, I've been doing this. I'm a little older than you know. A little you older. A yeah. little older, yeah. though you are professional. All right, let's talk about the book. Uh, you did. You, you screwed me again because, uh, you know, you left L.A. Yeah. Then you, you email me or you text me a few months back. Dave, Dave, I'd love to put you on the back of the book. <laughs> Can I get a blurb? I'm going to send you the manuscript. Read it if you like it. Say something nice about me. And I said something nice about you. And I don't have the book yet. It's en route, but I do have, we printed it out. Okay, we printed it out. I don't have the full book. I have part of it right here. Uh, Apparently, I did not make the back cover. So now, look, in my defense, Dave, I, I am but a lowly writer. Now, I send these things in. 
and I say, okay, here are these blurbs. And the publishers, they were very excited about your blurb. It's in, it's in there, it's in the book. But then I look at the back cover. You got beaten out of the cover by Shapiro. You got beaten, Clavin, Andrew Clavin, they put. I know, it's outrageous. Uh, this is, is, you might say it's a sort of digital book burning of your, of your quote, which is very relevant it is to, a your, digital to your body of work. All right, all right, let's not make it about me. I did make it into the front of the book, so it's okay. Okay, speechless. Look, you put words in a book. This is, yes. this is something new for you. Uh, your last book, obviously, Reasons to Vote for Democrats, you didn't put any words in. No very words. Cle- very clever, by the way, probably the greatest money-making scheme in, in uh, literature history. Um, <laughs> but how was it? How do you like the writing of a book that you were going to include it was, words? It was terrible. I'd actually like to quote at length your blurb. I want, <laughs> I want people to know that Dave read this. This is, this, is, this is the only nice thing you're ever going to say about me. Michael Knowles has become one of America's most fearless and important political thinkers in a time of unparalleled censorship. The fact that he put actual words in his book is proof of that. And I will tell you, Dave, I'm never going to make that mistake again because (laughs) it's so much time. Oh my gosh. I wrote my first book in about three minutes. And that was only because I couldn't figure out how to format the the, uh, little bottom where I put the page numbers, you know, and this thing took a long time to write. It took a long time to research and it actually did change some of my ideas. I went in and I knew I wanted to write a book. I felt there was not really a, an, a very accessible history of political correctness, which now we also call wokeness or, or cancel culture. And I said, okay, I just want to write that. I'm curious for my own sake, how did we get here? Because the harder we fight against political correctness or wokeism or whatever you want to call it, it seems the more ground we lose. Yeah. So why is that? And I went into the book with this preconception that conservatives and classical liberals, I, I would you know, lump together in this, understand free speech and censorship much better than the radical left does. And I, I was quickly disabused of this notion. I actually think now, if you take these radical leftist theorists seriously, the people who, you can trace it step by step, the people who gave us this current cultural mania, I think they understand speech and censorship much better than we do. I think that's how they are so much more successful at shaping it than we are. And I think we ignore that to our own peril. So I like the part of the book where you mentioned just that, and that's actually where I was gonna start with my, I've got highlights too. Um, the, the idea basically that they're willing to use structures of power to do yeah. things that those of us, let's say on this new right, are not necessarily willing to use. This is where you will always say to people, I always see you saying on Twitter to people, well, I'm not a libertarian and I do occasionally want to use some power. Can you you talk about that a little bit? Yes, because you'll always hear this response whenever you say that we should have standards at all or, you know, that that, uh, drag queen story hour shouldn't be able to twerk for toddlers and you say, maybe this isn't the greatest thing in public libraries. They'll say, well, I thought you were for small government. And I say, I'm I'm not for small government. I'm for limited government, Mm -hmm. but I'm not for, there's no such thing as small government in a country of 330 million people that has overseas holdings in the Pacific. Okay. There's no such thing that goes from Puerto Rico to Guam, right? That's, you can't have a very small government, but you can have a limited government that is within its own just power. And uh, moreover, when on the rare occasion that Republicans are given power by the people through our constitutional system, When we get that power, Republicans seem totally unwilling to wield it. They seem to think that any use of political power is somehow unjust. And and I think part of it is because we we have made a big error, and and it's something that the Founding Fathers were 
very precise about, and really all great statesmen are, which is we have conflated liberty and licentiousness. We have conflated the right to do what we ought to do with just being able to do whatever you want at any mm-hmm. given time. And the, the example I give of this is the heroin addict, right? According to the real definition of liberty, the heroin addict is not a free man. According to the modern liberal definition of liberty, he's the freest man in the world, right? He's got a couple bucks in his pocket. He can shoot up whenever he wants. But we know he's not. He's a slave to these really base appetites. He does, I don't think he really wants to shoot up the heroin in terms of his, his higher rational will. And so we conflated those two things, and we, we kind of gave away the game. Uh, the fact is, all societies are going to have standards, okay? All societies are going to say that you can say some things and you can't say other things. And we've, we've got a great speech tradition in America, but from the very beginning, there are whole swaths of speech that you are not allowed to engage in. Fraud, sedition, uh, uh, fighting words, direct threats, obscenity. Th- those things have been illegal for the whole history of our country, and for good reason, because those things, if you protect that with free speech, they actually undermine free speech. If you protect fraud, then nobody can trust anything anybody says. If you protect obscenity to, to a large degree, people are going to just become, you know, roiling uh, sex machines that, that aren't, aren't thinking very well, which I guess is one, the name of my high school band, and two, the kind of way that we've become in the society. So I just think the left understands yeah. there's always got to be some limit and they've used it and they've totally transformed those limits to their advantage. And meanwhile, what do we do? We throw up our hands and it's actually, it's even worse than that. There are two ways that we respond to this, generally as conservatives or libertarians. The one is you got the squishy types. The squishies just, they go along. Whatever the new rule is, they just yeah. go along with yeah. it. But then just as bad are the, are the stubborn, you know, my freedom, my conservative types who they, they say, I'm not going to go along with the new standards. I'm going to get rid of standards altogether. Uh, you know, say totally, absolutely whatever you want, do absolutely whatever you want. What, what I think they fail to realize is the whole point of political correctness is to destroy the old standards. The whole point is to destroy the, the old way of life. As Marx said, the ruthless criticism of all that exists. It's where you get things like critical theory and critical race theory. Mm-hmm. And so either way you respond in, those, in that system, you actually advance the purpose of political correctness. All right, you gave me a lot there. So first you're talking about sort of freedom from versus freedom to. That's your, that's your heroin guy argument. Um, have conservatives then just failed? I mean, is this just like a failing of you nice conservatives that now I talk to who are seemingly very friendly and not nearly as scary as I was told? Yes, we failed. We failed. Conservatives totally failed on this because what the left is offering a vision of society. It, basically, the, left, the radical left's vision of society is just the, the inverse of whatever the vision used to be. You know, mm-hmm. in the 1950s, if you were a communist, you would be canceled. You would lose your career in Hollywood. You, you could be prosecuted. I mean, it was, it was illegal yeah. under the Smith Act. Yeah. Uh, today, you'll be canceled if you're an anti-communist. Right? Right. So it's just, you'll still be canceled, but it's just the, the total flip of it. But they're, they're actually putting forward that vision of society. What is the conservative vision on this? The conservative vision is to defend now, and this is only over the last 20 years or so, to defend free speech in the abstract, right? Or to defend freedom of belief in the abstract. It's always in the abstract, but they won't ever get down to the brass tacks of what should we say? What do we believe? What is our, what are we offering people other than 
Nothing. And it's, this is why on the occasions that Republicans have won elections in, in the last 20 years, all we've ever managed to do, almost without exception, is cut taxes a little bit and maybe cut regulation a little bit, but actually maybe not. And that's it. And, and so the, I guess the question you have to ask yourself is after, after the Reagan revolution and even the Trump revolution and the Gingrich revolution, we won, won all these elections. It, would you say the country today is more conservative, more free than it was 20 years ago? No way. What do you think about this, Knowles? I think you're making the argument of our anarchist friend, Michael Malice, who always says that conservatism is liberalism at the speed limit. Yes. Now, I, I think that's a great observation. I would disagree with our friend, Michael Malice, uh, in that he is Are an anarchist. Are you guys friends? I just included you in the friend <laughs> thing. I don't know. I just... Yeah. I, I have been a great admirer of Michael ever since he has one of the greatest book titles of all time, Dear Reader. Yeah. His book, his book uh, citing uh, the leader of North Korea. Yeah. Uh, really great, very politically incorrect. You probably couldn't do it these days. But my answer to this, and I think this is where a conservative would depart from an anarchist, is the, the anarchist is sort of, you know, get off my lawn, let's dissolve all these sorts of bonds. And I just think that that is a utopian political vision. It's the, the flip side of the coin to socialism, right? These are, these are both atomizing uh, uh, visions of society that have a, what I would call a false anthropology, a false understanding of human nature, a false understanding of how society works. We're not born into the world as free-floating atoms, totally unbound. We're not born totally with entitlement and only with rights. We're also born into a real family, the bedrock political unit, in a real community, in a real state, in a real country. And we have not only rights, but obligations to those things. And we have not only freedoms, but responsibilities to use those freedoms carefully. And the civilization, uh, the society as a whole, has the right to put certain limits on there. And not only the right to do that, but I think the responsibility. So is that really the main takeaway in some ways of the book, that that standards and just having some limits really yeah. is basically the key to the whole thing that, that we're now at the point where we've degraded it all to the point where we have drag queen story hour. And as I've told you, no gay person that I know is happy about drag queen story hour. If anything, right. they're more annoyed than say a traditional conservative like yourself because it makes gay people look bad. You know it gives I mean? you a bad name. Right. So, right. But, it, but once you remove any level of standard, it's like like now, I mean, we've talked about this. Now I'm at the point where I'm like, there is nothing too crazy. I, every morning I wake up, I look at Twitter, drag queen story hour, you know, Cartoon Network, trans this, you know. Nickelodeon. Just, just the whole thing where it's like, there's nothing that could surprise me at this point because there are no standards anymore. Right, there, there are no standards and it, it cuts at the heart of self-government because what the argument being made by the liberals and by uh, libertarians and, and a great many conservatives is, well, Michael, if you enforce some standard, well, look, that's just your opinion, man. That's just your preference and your value. And look, uh, as one of the squishes on the right, now, he's no longer really on the right, but he, he used to be, uh, as he very famously said, uh, 
drag queen story hour is one of the blessings of liberty. If we tell uh, drag queens at radical organizations that they are not permitted to twerk for toddlers at the public library or in the school, why they'll tell us that we can't go to church on Sunday. And the, the flaws here are, Wait, one- Wait, I think, I think you're talking about David French, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> I wanted to be nice and not name him, but Well, yes, I think in I mean, this case, I don't like making about people, but it is because I remember seeing that Twitter thread and I was like, yeah. if this is what conservative is, conservatism is, then that's not what I am now. I'll yeah. tell you that much. Yeah, and I think, you know, D David has, uh, you know, always been nice to me, uh, but I, I guess the niceness is sort of the problem, isn't it? Because the, if conservatism means uh, that drag queens can twerk for toddlers, somewhere one has lost the thread. And, and I think what it also fails to recognize is, one, they're already telling us to, that, that we can't go to church on Sunday, right? They told <laughs> us that for about a year. They left the marijuana shop open, but they shut down the churches. So they're already doing it. They're already telling us that we're not allowed to practice our religion in a really public way. You saw this semantic shift from freedom of religion to freedom of worship. Mm -hmm. Right, and it was a, a subtle shift, but political correctness is about subtle semantic shifts. And freedom of worship is something that happens in your head, right? Or, or it happens some maybe somewhere on a Sunday. Freedom of religion is different, right? And it, and it makes certain claims of the world. But so, one, I think as a practical matter, their argument is just ridiculous. But but moreover, at the heart of that argument is this assertion that we can just never know any anything about morality or philosophy or the way things are supposed to be that we can just, we can't know. It's all just preferences. But the, the thing about self-government is you've got to know. You've, the whole point of self-government is that we persuading one another, having debate, having discussion, you, using our speech, we will persuade one another of how we want to live and we will make certain moral conclusions. I know it's very popular these days to say you can't legislate morality. That is a meaningless statement. All laws legislate morality. Any law on murder, any law on the, the death penalty, any law on a parking ticket, for goodness sakes, is making moral claims. It's referring to the moral law. So if we, if we can't actually know stuff, if we can't rely on our faculties of reason and our, our conscience, which now are being explicitly denied by the radical left, right? They're saying that, that you're, the idea that you have objective uh, truth or, you know, faculties of reason is, is somehow bigoted or white supremacist. Yeah. But if, if you don't have that, then you, you can't govern yourself, right? You can't reason through these things. And it's, it's what's led to the Fauci's of the world. It's what's led to this bureaucratic state that's just going to make decisions for us because we no longer have the right to, or the ability to discuss them. Do you think there's also a, a misunderstanding of how they're playing the game by people, let's say, on our side, in that when, when someone like French says, well, if we don't give them drag queen story hour, then they're not gonna give us freedom to worship or something like that, that what I think he's really fundamentally misunderstanding is they don't wanna give you anything no matter what. You, can, you <laughs> right. can give them drag queen story hour and then the next crazier thing and then the next crazier thing, but that's not, I think he, they sort of think like, oh, it's giving them enough penance to, so they'll be nice to us, but it never, turns out that way. Yeah, they're, they, they are, fun, the, the sort of squishy side of this argument is, is fundamentally misunderstanding the nature of our political opponents yes. who, who truly don't yes. care. They don't care about how nice and genteel we are. They, they actually see that as a weakness. But they also misunderstand everything. <laughs> they, they also misunderstand the history of conservatism and conservative thought, as well as the history of the United States. Uh, now we are told that 
really what conservatives need to stand for. I'll just, I'll use the university for an example is we need to stand for academic freedom and you can teach anything you want. And if you object to the radical critical theorist in the classroom, then you are threatening our sacred principle of academic freedom. William F. Buckley Jr., founder of the, the modern conservative movement, he founder of national review, right? He, he launched his career and the conservative movement with a book called God and Man at Yale. Everyone remembers that. Subtitle, The Superstitions of Academic Freedom. He refers in that book to academic freedom as a hoax. Mm-hmm. It's a farce. It's not, it only cuts in one direction. And Buckley makes this point. He says, the Yale Department of Sociology would never hire someone who gave lectures on the biological superiority of the Aryan. They would never hire a neo-Nazi, nor should they. They, they have a standard, they have an understanding of the world, and they have a, a responsibility to fulfill their mission as educators. Now, mm-hmm. the, the, many of the people who claim the legacy of William F. Buckley Jr. love this idea of academic freedom, but it remains a hoax, it's a farce. It, it only ever goes in one direction. So is this where when you see that, you know, some of the states, uh, in many cases, led by Chris Rufo, who I've had on the show, have you, have you talked to Chris? You've brought, I have, you've yes, he's, yeah. he's doing great work. Doing incredible, yeah. like he's not just talking, he's doing. When you see these states taking actions to keep critical race theory out of the schools, this is an application of state power you're okay with, obviously. Of course, because it's, it's necessary. When, when I say that we, we need to have standards, I'm not just saying, you know, come on guys, you've got to, I'm, I'm saying, Inevitably, we will have standards, inevitably. Inevitably, the state will have something to say about education. They run the education system. And let's say it's even a private school. Inevitably, someone is going to set the curriculum. There's a very popular expression these days, they'll say, a lot of conservatives say it. We don't want to teach students what to think, only how to think. And you say, okay, good, I'm, I'm with you, except in order to know how to think, you need to know what to think. In, in order for me to know how to think about mathematics, I need to know that two plus two equals four. And that's, that is a coercive exercise. The te- when the teacher tells the student that, if the student says, no, actually two plus two equals five, the, the student will get a bad grade. They will be punished for that because you need to know those facts. And it's true, not just in mathematics, it's true in history, it's true in philosophy, it's true in ethics. So education is always going to be an, a coercive exercise. Sometimes you'll hear now, same kind of people will say, we, we should educate students, not indoctrinate them. The words are synonyms. They mean the exact same thing. They're just, but, but the, one has a negative connotation, one has a positive connotation. And so wh- when I say that we need standards, when I say that we need just and prudent censorship, I'm not saying this is an arbitrary exercise of will, or it's just a way to own the libs and punish our enemies. I mean, that's all well and good, but I'm, I'm saying we need to, using our faculties of reason, not doing anything immoral, following standards of justice and truth, we need to express those things and tell people, no, actually some things are true and some things are false. What, what I'm saying is that in order to save free speech, we must embrace censorship, which is inevitable. And I don't want the crazy radical left censorship that's not going to let me say true things. But we need to recognize there must be some guardrails here because otherwise you're not going to have free speech at all. Do you remember, Knowles, a few years back when we first started doing shows together and I said to you, I will become the furthest right of all of you people 
you people, that's what I was calling you conservatives uh -huh. at the time, and I was talking about, I was sitting in a room with you and Clavin and Shapiro and everything else, because I know what this thing is, I was in it. And, and that's why I think you're so interesting at the moment, because we've really sort of met somewhere here that I think yeah. represents what the future of the right will be. You go into the book, you, you also talk a bit about religion and atheism, and you talk about John Locke and his feelings towards atheism, and uh, I'm, I'm with you there too. This, this secular, this purely secular thing that we seem to be doing at the moment, it ain't working, huh? Well, this, this is such an important point here because what, what I'm going to hear, I, I know that I'm already hearing this in the book. The big criticism is that I am pushing an illiberal, authoritarian, theocratic view of the world. I don't know where they got that from, but it's in there. That's what they say. I like the, this with the theocratic. This, that's the theocratic. I know, I'll wag my finger. The fact is that John Locke, the father of liberalism, has a much more restrictive view of speech than I do. <laughs> okay, in, in John Locke's letter concerning toleration, mm -hmm. letter concerning toleration, he says, you know, we gotta tolerate people, and that's really good, except for atheists. Atheists, cannot, they cannot be tolerated because they undercut the entire vision we have of society. John Milton, who wrote probably the most famous defense of free speech in the English language, it's called Areopagitica. He defends the free speech and the free press, and everyone has to have free speech, except for Catholics. And I, and I, by the way, I see his argument. He's saying that it, these years of political strife and turmoil, if you uh, uh, allow these tensions to really fester, the whole society is going to fall apart. It very nearly did in John Milton's lifetime. And so he's saying there have to be some limits to things that we all agree on for the very purpose of having free speech. I'm glad they didn't outlaw, well, I suppose they did, but I'm glad here we haven't outlawed Catholics from speaking. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to write this book. But obviously, there were some limits here. And when you, when you talk about religion, another one of these very silly sayings that you hear uh, on, from the left today and from some on the squishy right is they'll say, we need a firm separation between church and state. This is a secular country. And where did the founding fathers say that? Well, that's kind of hard to find. Actually, you don't really see a lot of examples of it, but we, we definitely need that. And when I say that we need to take religion seriously in public life, I am not, I'm not even saying this as a normative statement. I'm not, I'm, it's not a rallying cry necessarily so much as it is a descriptive statement. I'm mm -hmm. just saying all political arrangements make religious claims. You have, there's always got to be some relationship between religion and politics because your polity, the way you view your citizens, the way you view your laws, the, those refer to the moral law. Those refer to our understanding of human nature, of, of what humanity even is, which by the way, you're seeing challenge now in the sort of transgender ideology, because that's, that's positing a vision of human nature that says that uh, one's body has nothing to do with one, who one really is. You know, I could, I could look like a man. I got the Adam's apple. I have the deep voice. But if I say that somehow I'm a woman, it's not even that it's complicated, which is how life really is. It's not even that it's 50-50 um, or something. I just am a woman, right? Because that's a, a vision of human nature. And that you should just go for it at that very moment, yeah. which is even more disturbing. Jordan Peterson's talked about that a lot, that it, you have to still yeah. think about all of the things that are going to change in your life. And guess what? Not, not every eight-year-old can figure that all out. <laughs> right, of course. I mean, uh, when, when we're talking about the, the children, it's preposterous. We say that, uh, you know, I mean, first of all, we have age of consent laws for a reason because, because uh, children have not come to understand their freedom, right? They have not had education. They, they're not capable of 
perfect or even re- remotely adequate reason. So we're saying, okay, if a, if a 17-year-old girl sleeps with her 19-year-old boyfriend, that is rape, that is illegal in certain places, that is a very heinous crime. But if a seven-year-old decides to hack off perfectly functioning organs and, and pump themselves full of uh, cross-sex hormones, that is not only permissible, that is actually mandatory. And if parents don't let the kids do that, they, they are going to call Child Protective Services and have the children taken away. Th- those two views obviously can't be held at the same time, but it's because of fundamentally a religious confusion and an, and an uh, inability to make uh, moral claims in politics. So, okay, so then let's back up to the atheism thing for a second, because when I was reading what you had in there with some of the quotes from John Locke, this idea, his argument in essence seemed to be that if if you were to let the atheist worldview flourish, that the amount of destruction would sort of, you just wouldn't be able to build anything after. I'm sort of loosely loosely doing it there. That kind of feels right to me, which is why the atheist, yeah. the atheist movement that was really powerful online, say five years ago or seven years ago, has been completely obliterated. And I don't know one atheist, public atheist, that's really making any sort of political sense. I mean, Richard Dawkins apologized to the mob because of this trans thing. And he, he had no problem standing up to radical Islamists for his whole career. And now he's apologizing over, you know, young children transitioning. Yes. I mean, this, the kind of recent movement of atheists in the 2000s never made much sense at all. But atheists generally uh, don't make a lot of sense. They can be perfectly fine, lovely people, but it, that, that you don't want to jail them. Does, Let's just be clear. I don't want to jail them, but okay. it, but it, it does lead to madness. And it's <laughs> it's worth pointing out too. Atheism is a good example. Our country is premised on the idea that we have certain unalienable natural rights given to us by God, right? By our Creator, capital C. It's right there in the founding documents of our country. So if you come in and you not only deny that that is true, but you actively seek to subvert that, the country can't tolerate that. It, that undermine, that all of these wonderful things that we've gotten from our country, this broad defense of speech and all the other rights and institutions we have, are undermined when you undermine the very basis of the country. There, uh, Chesterton has a good line on it. He says, there is a thought that stops thought, and that's the only thought that ought to be stopped. It's a, it's a good line when you think about critical race theory. Right? You, you hear this all the time with critical race theory. They say, we need to expand the curriculum. When we add these radical racist classes, it's just to expand and open the curriculum. First of all, you can't expand a curriculum. There's only so many weeks in the semester. There are only so many books you can read. Every minute you waste on Ibram Kendi is a moment that you're not reading a, a valuable author. But moreover, you are not enhancing a student's education when you, when you put critical race theory into schools you are undermining that student's education because you are, you are telling students that there really is no such thing as objective truth, that we really can't rely on our reason, that the things that are the very basis of our education, the idea that there's truth and we can try to find it, that that is a fool's errand. So you, you, you undercut the whole point of education, which is why when someone like Ron DeSantis goes in and says, no more critical race theory in schools, he is actually expanding the potential for education, not restricting. He's also being the reverse squishy Republican, which I think is, yes. is what you're asking for. You mentioned yeah. at the top um, that you learned some stuff as you were going through the book and coming up with some of these ideas. What, what was something else that you really learned while writing? Because that's the, to me, that was the fun part of writing when I was like, oh, I really have to dive in and not just yeah. say these things and understand them at a service level. You really got to get in there and, and pull out the important stuff. 
I, I learned that a lot of what we have come to regard as just, com- and I'm, I'm talking on the right, I'm talking among conservatives, a lot of what we've come to regard as the, the nature of our American regime and the kind of nature of the founding and how we understand ourselves and free speech is kind of bunk. And it was kind of just, uh, they're just bumper stickers from the last 20 years or so. And, and I, I came to a grudging respect, even for the most vile of the leftist theorists. I'll give a good example, is Herbert Marcuse. Herbert Herbert Marcuse. He was he was actually mocked in that um, Coen Brothers movie, Hail Caesar. Caesar, He's sort of the the villain of that movie. So so Herbert Marcuse was one of the critical theorists, one of the OGs in the Frankfurt School, and he uh, developed a lot of these ideologies in in the Marxist tradition, in the Western Marxist tradition, thinking specifically about culture. And then he pops up again. He goes and he works for the precursor to the CIA for a while. He goes into the academy for a while. Then he pops up again in the 60s as the father of the new left. I mean, he's considered maybe the most influential figure during the radical movements of the 60s. And Marcuse writes one of the most infamous essays on free speech ever composed. It it was called Repressive Tolerance. It seems like a contradiction in terms. And Marcuse says, he's got a lot of like silly jargon that you can kind of ignore. Then he comes to the heart of it. He says, a liberating tolerance would not tolerate intolerance which he defines as conservative thought. And he, and he observes that the conservatives had cultural hegemony. They had sort of control over the institutions, they control over the common sense. And so what we need to do to correct that is censor and suppress the conservatives and advance the radical leftist thought. And he was decried by people, certainly people on the right and, and people on the left as well. But his, his basic point that you can't tolerate intolerance is correct. That's actually true. The you paradox can, it's the same of argument. tolerance. Yes, it is. And conservatives need to learn this lesson. That it, I think that the conservative vision, I think the American vision of free speech and the way we all live together is a very tolerant one. I think it's the most tolerant one basically ever in history. But that is now being undone, and it's being explicitly undone by the radicals of the 1619 Project, the critical race theorists, and the whole kit and caboodle. And by the way, people in elected office, I mean, even all the way up to the Biden administration. And so that is being undone because we fail to recognize that Marcuse was right. There were some things that are non-negotiable. Going back to Bill Buckley, Bill Buckley's second book was a defense of Joe McCarthy. McCarthyism, the anti-communist crusader. Shocking, right? Uh, Years later, I mean, Buckley came to temper his his defense of McCarthy, mostly on practical grounds that McCarthy kind of screwed things up. But I think it was about a dozen years after that book came out, Buckley was talking to a neoconservative, uh, Leo Churn, and they were debating on his TV show. And Churn said, you're for an open society, Bill, aren't you? Don't you? We want a big open society. Coincidentally, the ty- that's the name of George oh, Soros' George. philanthropic foundation. <laughs> so yeah. you, you can see how this has a leftward lurch. Yeah. And, and Bill said, no, I don't. No, I don't think society should be totally open. I want the society to be considerably more closed. And he used a ridiculous phrase. He said, I'm an epistemological optimist. And he kind of made fun of himself. He said, what that means is, I think that some things are settled. I think that some things we don't actually need to rehash. I don't think that we need to rehash Nazism. I don't think we need to rehash communism. And the point he's making is not just one of practical politics. He's actually making a point about knowledge, how we know things. Certain things you just have to assume. In mathematics, you have to just assume certain axioms. 
A equals A, A plus B equals B plus A, right? Certain things that I can't prove, I can't, pr but you have to just assume it. I have to assume that my faculties of reason are somewhat reliable. I have to assume it. I have to assume that objective truth exists. I have to assume it because otherwise I am rendered speechless. What I mean by that is I can't, you can't make an argument if there is no such thing as objective truth and if we don't have faculties of reason. So you have to assume those things. And when people come in and try to obliterate your belief in those things, you must resist it and you must suppress that. It's so interesting to me because you're basically making the argument for why I can't call myself a liberal with a straight face anymore because of yeah. the objective truth issue that you're bringing up and the paradox of tolerance, which is why the yeah. seven remaining liberals that are flailing around right now you, you, you talk about the squishy Republicans or the squishy conservatives. I see them as the, the ineffectual liberals. It's like, you, yeah. you guys let this in. You have now none of the tools to deal with it, but your biggest fear, I mean, I say this all the time, but your biggest fear is that you don't want to be called conservative. And it's like, yeah. they're not well, coming for you. And you, you've done this thing, which is not permitted anymore in society which is you've thought about things and changed your mind on some issues, right? You yeah. have not, and uh, unfortunately, forget about the left, they're not changing their mind either. They're, they're be quite successful, so why would they? Uh, but the right refuses to change its mind. I think the, the right had some good ideas, and then they turned those ideas into slogans, and they turned those slogans into bumper stickers, and every bumper sticker is wrong. You <laughs> reality will not be distilled into a few pithy little sayings on a, on a napkin. And they, they refuse to rethink it. So the right knows at this point that it's in a losing strategy, right? The right knows that it's just losing ground after ground. Doesn't Even when we win elections, we lose. But they're not willing to rethink things, look at objective reality with new eyes, and change their mind. So it's, uh, so I, I see you flailing your arms or, you know, you're, you're probably shaking people by the shoulders for, yeah. the, for the seven remaining liberals. But one could do the same thing about the conservatives who, who fail to recognize that the strategy that they may have adopted in, in the best hopes has not worked because reality was a little different than that theory. And we've got to rethink our history. We've got to rethink our philosophy and we've got to actually try to win again. So on that note, Knowles, let's, let's end with this because I've got a hard out today, even though I could do 20 hours with you, obviously. Uh, what does the future that you're writing about in that book, that I wrote about in my book, that we talk about all the time, what does it actually look like? What, what can we be doing? What can we be messaging to the people that watch our shows that get it? They don't want to be the broken liberals. They don't want to be the, dis uh, the squishy Republicans, conservatives. What, what is it that we're building and, and who's going to help us build it? Because that's the whole the thing that I'm always going for now. The future involves the word no. We need to be able to use the word no. Only by saying no will you be able to say yes. Only by saying no to certain destructive ideologies will you be able to say yes to edifying, to building up again. Only by saying no to critical race theory, to radical gender ideology, to this nihilistic secularism that is pervading the culture. Only by saying no, we will not tolerate that in our schools, in our institutions, in our workplaces. By saying no, we will be able to say there is such a thing as truth. We can know things, not just physical scientific things, but moral things, philosophical things, even religious things. We can know that in our politics and we can build up from there. We, we need to 
stop being so damn nice. And we also need to get rid of the premises that, that our adversaries have foisted on us. You know, when, when the squishes for the last 20 or 30 years have only focused on economic issues, right? You hear this all, I'm a, I'm a fiscal conservative, but a social liberal or whatever. They, I don't even know what that means anymore. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything when, anymore. It, it doesn't it, it mean means, anything. It means you're a conservative who doesn't want to admit it or because you're really a guilty <laughs> liberal or something like that, yeah. Yes, yeah. and it, it also, if you say that all I care about is economics, you're saying the same thing as the socialist. The socialist views man as essentially Fire. an economic being. Yeah. Yes, it's just, it's just like stuff, you know. And, and the, the squishy conservative is saying the same thing. We need to say something different. Phyllis Schlafly, one of the great conservative leaders of the last century, uh, had a, a very famous saying. She said, we need a choice, not an echo. And what we've had so far is a left that is putting forward a vision of society, and we've had a right that basically agrees with them or is unwilling to have the courage to stand up to them. But one does need courage. We need to accept the reality that there is truth and there is virtue. And we need to recognize that the prerequisite virtue is courage. It's not enough to lose with dignity as all the undignified people do. You have to have the courage to make claims, to enforce those claims, and to win. Knowles, you've become pretty good at this. I'll give it to you. You've become... <laughs> Pretty good at this, you know, when, when I said to you, well, what, what painted forward for us? You know, what is it going to look like? And you said, well, we got to say no. That was your Howard Beale, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore speech. If you had been in a jacket coming out of the rain and screaming and you're going to rip your microphone off at the end, I think that, That's was, it. that was it. Uh, speechless is out right now. It's in your hand. And although I am not on the back cover, I am in the beginning. and You are there. That's just enough the for first me. First page is Dave Rubin saying very nice things about me. I don't, if you never do it again, I've got the proof. It's right here. Knowles, you're invited it. to my birthday party in crazy LA in a couple weeks. I hope, you, I hope you're willing to leave Nashville, but I get it. I get it. You want your fried bologna and your boots and your guitar. Dave, there is one thing that could get me to go back to that failed state. <laughs> that is your birthday, but that's the one thing. And I'll only stay for the party that I'm going, I'm flying back out afterwards. Good work, Knowles. See you soon. Thank <laughs> you.